the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed. This week, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Lee Johnson and Rick Lee, and we're talking about materialism. But before we get started, let's get our drinks and our rants and raves. So, Rick, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Today, I'm going back to one of my classics. I'm going to have a Manhattan made the proper way with rye. And I am ranting about the U.S. Postal Service. Or maybe more in particular, what the Trump administration has done to the Postal Service And we seem not to have come out of that. You know, the Postal Service is one of the few things actually mentioned in the Constitution. And that should be something that's not really fucked up. But somehow Trump managed to take what was a really great thing and screw it up. Lee, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I think I'm just going to have a hot toddy. And today I'm actually raving about tube men. So I know you guys know what this is, the air-inflated tube men that sort of flop all over the place. They're usually in front of, you know, cell phone stores or whatever, things like that. But it's been very cold here recently, and I saw one in the process of being frozen. Tube men are one of my favorite things of all time, so this is a new tube man experience for me. But, man, I just love those things, and they are bizarre to look at once they're frozen. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking, and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a West End Mule, which is a drink done by LFK, a little bar here in Portland that's basically ginger beer, lime, mint, and Maker's Mark. And I'm going to rave about Stuart Hall. I've been reading a lot of Stuart Hall. This partly started when I traced down the line, race is the modality in which class is lived, which I've seen a lot of people cite. turns out to be from the book Policing the Crisis – which doesn't have a ton to say about race and class, but it's an amazing book about moral panics around crime and is increasingly relevant in our current moral panic about shoplifting and so on. And I've been reading his writings on race and class, and he's just like an amazingly clear but sophisticated thinker. And I kind of feel like I should have been reading him a while ago, and I sort of missed the boat on that one, and I'm trying to catch up. Nice. So speaking of all things race, class, and social relations, let's get into our topic, and that is materialism. So, Rick, materialism, what do you want to talk about? Materialism's a funny thing, because on the one hand, you could say it's one of the oldest positions in philosophy in the West, but it's also one that is constantly debated, discussed, thrown out, brought back. We could go all the way back to Thales when he says everything is water or everything is from water, to Hobbes saying that whatever is, is a body. Now we have new materialisms. We have feminist materialisms. We have materialisms influenced by cognitive science. So with all of these materialisms, it seems that there's always been a materialism of some sort. And with the name, it seems like it is some kind of preference for or gives priority to matter. And it seems always tempting to philosophers to just say everything that is, is matter. But on the other hand, philosophy is a way of thinking about things, and thought has demands, and those demands might not necessarily belong to the material world, even if I say thinking is an activity of the brain. 
So it's time to take a look at materialism, right? What is it? Are there different kinds? Is it a metaphysical position? Is it an epistemological position? Is it a political position? Is it all of these? And finally, are we living in a material world? And if so, am I a material girl? with a definition. Is there a definition of materialism? What is materialism and what does it mean to be a materialist in philosophy? Did Leah tell you to say that? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not exactly sure. And I think at some point we'll have to discuss, are there different kinds of materialism and so on? But whenever I'm not sure about a philosophical concept, I have this method I deploy, and that is to ask, as opposed to what? Mm -hmm. And so materialism as opposed to And what would be the thing that it's opposed to? And I'm not sure I even have a good idea about that, but it seems like one of the things it's opposed to is idealism. Now, here I have to stop because we have a listener who happens to be my brother-in-law. His name is David. He's not a philosopher and has no training in philosophy, but he really loves our podcast. And he asked if when we use terms like this, we could say a little bit about what they mean. So I'm going to explain this for David. Idealism is the position that reality is either the product of thought or what counts as real is only that which is thinkable. And it's a philosophy that's most frequently associated with the German philosopher Hegel. And so materialism would counter that by saying, no, reality has an independent mode of being that is not just constituted by thought, constructed by thought, and maybe it's not even all thinkable itself. So idealism, I think, would be one as opposed to materialism. Yeah, I'm not sure that helps explain yeah. what materialism <laughs> is, though. I mean, because it seems in that comparison that all we've really just said is that the world is, in fact, material rather than ideal, and that there might be some material things that are non-idealizable. But sort of what is that as a philosophy? I think the difficult thing here is that obviously the word matter is there at the heart of this Mm -hmm. word materialism. And in order to decide what materialism is, one has to put down a definition of matter. And I think that's not such an easy thing to do philosophically. I mean, without sounding like you're high or something, because you could say, (laughs) oh, it's it's stuff. Stuff is like there, man. But if you ask for a definition of matter, it's incredibly difficult, I think, to come up with one. And if you can't come up with a definition of matter, then how are you going to come up with a definition of materialism or figure out what materialism is? I mean, I think for me, materialism has to be sort of a paradoxical position in philosophy. I mean, it's paradoxical because to some extent, philosophers are idealists almost seems to go without saying because idealists like to think that it's thinking that determines existence, that concepts shape the world, and that's what philosophers are all about. So to take the counter position is somewhat paradoxical. But I think the other place of the paradox, or maybe it's not a paradox at this point, maybe it's more of a contradiction, is for me – Something important with materialism starts with Marx. And one of the interesting things about Marx's relationship to materialism is he's not that interested in matter, 
really. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, well, first in the German ideology, for one quick definition of materialism, when Marx says consciousness does not determine life, life determines consciousness, is you know one quick and easy definition of materialism, although it doesn't capture all of it. But more importantly, is Marx in the thesis on Feuerbach when he says that a lot of materialisms like those of Feuerbach that talk about the body or sensuousness or matter are actually kind of idealisms because they talk about matter as an object to be conceptualized. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of idealist. The flip side of this is Marx says that a lot of the idealists were actually kind of materialist because they talked about activity a lot. They talked about practical activity, as in the case of Kant, and, you know, Hegel too, right? I mean, if you read the phenomenology, one of the things that happens all the time is that activity changes the conceptual relation, right? Once the bondsman goes to work, that changes the whole master-slave relation. And that activity is at the core of Marx's definition of materialism. I mean, it is what Balibar says, a materialism without matter. What makes materialism a philosophy is not the supposed object being matter, but materialism is about things affecting and transforming each other. Practices and relations are really what materialism is about rather than a materialist object in some sense. And I think that's where I begin, though I think it is a real transformation. I mean, as you were saying, Rick, there's a much older tradition and there are places, you know, the history of philosophy, La Maitrie, etc., people saying, oh, what really exists are bodies. But I think Marx has to be understood as if he is a materialist thinker, and I think he is, he's one who changes the definition and says, I'm not only that interested in bodies or answering the question, what is matter? I'm interested in thinking about the way in which the first thing we have to think about is activities, labor, work, the way things are constantly affecting and transforming each other, that's what a materialist philosophy is about. But then if it's a materialism without matter, I mean, one basic question is why still call it materialism? I mean, what's at stake then in taking on the label? Now, when you point to labor, I see a reason why to hold on to the label materialism when I think that labor might stand at the center of my philosophical enterprise Mm -hmm. because labor takes place in a world that is not constructed by thought. It's sort of constructed internally by labor and relations of labor and so on. And therefore, labor is something that seems to stand outside of the way in which thought works, the patterns of thought and the constructions of thought. But then why call it materialism? Why not call it, I don't know, pragmatism or realism or or something like that. It seems to me that at least one important difference between materialism and idealism is really about the sort of emphasis that they put on what causes change. I think Mm. this is a lot of times why, especially people who studied in the tradition that the three of us did, go straight to the Hegel-Marx distinction, the 19th Mm. century, where clearly what's at work there are larger philosophies of history. And we have a contrast between, you know, on the one hand, the idealists who want to say something like, we change our ideas about the world and then the world itself changes, as opposed to the materialists who want to say the world itself changes and we have to adjust our thinking of it to those material changes. So in that sense, it seems that really what we're talking about here is a matter of priority or emphasis. Mm -hmm. You know, what or how is it that these two things matter and ideas work in the world as we experience it, moving in time, changing, perhaps progressing and regressing, depending on how invested we are in terms like that. 
But it does seem to me, sorry to get just back to the what is matter thing, that we still need a definition of matter. And at least in this tradition, I'm pretty sure, I feel pretty confident saying that most materialists, when they're talking about matter, are talking about matter in the physical stuff sense, right? So, you know, things that could be measured in a laboratory. So mathematics is not matter. Ideologies are not matter, are not materials. And that's where I think it gets a little bit more complicated because then when you start talking about things like information, well, information kind of is material and also ideal. So, you know, that's where it gets messier, I think. But I agree with you, Rick. We have to have some sense of what we mean by matter. In Aristotle's book, Metaphysics, he starts by discussing Thales, who, as I mentioned in the intro, has this position that everything is water or everything is from water. And Aristotle argues against that by saying something basically like, you cannot say that matter is the principle of everything. Matter is what underlies everything and therefore causes everything to be what it is because matter doesn't carry with itself its own explanation. And so when you say matter is the stuff that I can measure in the laboratory and, and so on, for Aristotle, that's tantamount to saying shit happens. Mm -hmm. And for him saying shit happens, well, as he puts it, that's tantamount to saying everything is from night. At that point, you're giving up philosophy. And I think this is what Jason was pointing to when he said that Marx recognizes that a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, everything is just stuff and all of this business that you philosophers make up out of your heads, that's all nonsense. The reality is just this stuff that I can knock on, I brush up against, and I can measure in the lab. And I think Marx has a very convincing argument that actually what they're talking about is not the stuff, but the concept of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they're not actually materialists, they're idealists. That being said, <laughs> I have actually made an argument that really when it comes down to it, the only thing that matter could mean, if it's not going to be an idealism or worse, a theology, is that it's what is other than thought. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, the moment one makes some kind of determination, one is already then turning that stuff into a concept and slipping fairly quickly into idealism. Yeah, it seems to me, though, that especially among a certain strain of current cognitive scientists, that I could imagine making the same argument about idealism that you're making about materialism. So mm -hmm. effectively, when they say something like consciousness is just what the brain does, mm -hmm. they're effectively saying like whatever you're calling ideas is just whatever is not stuff. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that would follow from my definition of matter as whatever is other than thought, then thought is whatever's other than matter. Mm -hmm. And I don't much care where that happens or how that happens, whether it's, you know, brain activity or neurons firing or whether I have, you know, an immortal soul that makes my body alive. So I think that does follow, and I, I don't see any problem with biting the bullet. The important point is the one that Jason raised. Namely, that for Marx, this becomes important precisely because it's certain social relations, economic relations, and the change in those that actually is what we call history. 
and not the change in ideas that we have the enlightenment and, you know, we had substance metaphysics and then we stopped believing in God. And none of that really changes the world. But Marx is saying, no, it's these social relations that change the world. And it's, in fact, those social relations which are productive of the ideas. But along those lines, it seems like then there's this element of Marx where Marx wants to say that theory itself can become a material force when it seizes the masses, right? And Marx mm. wants to say ideas don't shape history, but if a bunch of people believe an idea, then that can change history, right? I mean, there is a certain element of materialist philosophy, and you see this in Althusser's writing on ideology, where they constantly want to ask the question, what is the material aspect of X? And X could be understood as ideas, philosophy, ideology, that to some extent is to say, well, you know, this is when Althusser talks about what's more important about ideology is not what people think, but what they do. Right. The mm -hmm. whole line about like if you take Barros's line from Pascal about religious belief, if you kneel down and move your lips, you will believe, right? The more important thing is not what people think about religion or whatever, but what they do. To some extent, there's an aspect of materialism which insists on asking the question, what is the material aspect of X? And X, as I was saying, can include things like ideas, right? Because ideas can't really be totally separate from the material world. They exist. They are communicated through various material means, whether it be language or writing. They transform social relations as well. So there's a certain other side of materialism, which is not so much claiming matter against ideas, but asking the question, what is the material nature of ideas? I think a really good example of this is Descartes' meditations. And I'm thinking particularly of the first meditation. You know, everyone says the meditations is the start of the division of mind and body and the invention of modern subjectivity and so on. And yet they're never concerned about the actual division of labor that makes the meditations themselves possible that Descartes incorporates into the meditations, namely when he says, I'm sitting here by this fire in my dressing gown, you get a sense that he has a support staff. The possibility of him sitting for six days and meditating requires that he has money, that someone is preparing his meals, that he doesn't have to get dressed on a work day, <laughs> you know, because he looks out the window and he sees people rushing back and forth. Why? Because they have stuff to do and he doesn't. There, I think, is the material aspect of Cartesian dualism, if there is something we could call Cartesian dualism. And I'm more concerned about his authorizing and legitimating that division of labor than I am by his separating the mind from the body and inventing modern subjectivity. It's always something ironic about the philosopher credited with creating mind-body dualism is also the only philosopher who tells you what he's wearing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also what he's doing. I bring this wax closer to the fire and he tastes the wax. The man's licking wax. <laughs> I do think there is this tendency among materialists to talk about matter as if it's this thing that's always kind of resisting, right? Resisting being conceptualized, resisting being fit into a system in a way that is measurable and chartable and those sorts of things. 
that like we can't really do anything to the matterness of the matter, right? I mean, we right, can right. of course shape it, we can do things with it in the course of projects, but that the matter is there resisting, for lack of a better word, control all of the time. And this reminds me of this really great episode in Don DeLillo's novel White Noise. So this is from the 90s, back when everyone loved to talk about simulacra. And this is a passage that often gets brought up in that context. But, you know, he's telling the story about how these thousands and thousands of people go every year to see the most photographed barn in America. (laughs) But of course, when they get there, what do they do? They stand behind their cameras and they photograph the barn. And he seems to want to suggest that the barn has kind of ceased to exist. The actual material, physical stuff of the barn has ceased to exist and has been replaced by, in some ways, this idea of the most photographed barn Mm. in America, Mm. but also the material activity of people, in effect, supplanting the actual material barn Mm -hmm. with the most photographed barn in America. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that I find myself when I talk to, I'll say, hardcore materialists kind of wanting to resist their insistence on the absolute resistance of matter. It doesn't seem to me that matter has this kind of magical quality that is often imparted to it. Well, I mean, going back to the Descartes example, I don't think in terms of an absolute resistance of matter, I think it has to do with the gap between what I think and the position from which I think. The life that determines consciousness and the consciousness that thinks about that life. I mean, the cart never stops and thinks, oh shit, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm licking wax here. Maybe I should rethink that I'm identify myself as a thing that thinks. I'm also a thing that licks and, you know, sits (laughs) by the fire and so on. It's the non-relation between what he utters and how he utters it in terms of the material discussion of his body and his place and the fire and all the sort of practices he goes through, that to some extent is what I think materialism is always trying to expose, to sort of recognize that once we start thinking, I mean, as Marx says about the division of intellectual manual labor, once that division is in place, it is possible for thinking to think it is something other than thinking about something. It is possible for thinking to see itself as the pure power of thought and not a thinking something that is situated like we all are. So part of what I understand by materialism is not so much that matter resists, but that where we think from and how we think are often in a relation of non-identity. But I'm really struck by your point, Lee, and the way Jason just ended that makes me even more struck because I think I'm one of those who does or who is on record as saying matter is resistance. So I've been thinking through what it is you said and I'm wondering if the fact that stuff might be capable of so many different non-stuff determinations, barnness, most photographed barnness, means that none of these determinations are actually capturing what that matter is that is the barn. And so that's the thing that each time you reach out to grasp it, barn, most photographed barn, used to be the most photographed barn, what the matter is, is still constantly receding from that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not resistance, but there is this way in which 
even because it is capable of all of these determinations, it is constantly slipping away from any determination. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And that brings to mind the way that people often talk about phusis, right? Nature is that it's this thing that sort of appears unbidden, that we don't really have an answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And every time that we try to have an answer to that, the thing itself sort of recedes from the descriptive account of it uh, mm. or our descriptive account of it. So yeah, I think I'm on board with that. Yeah, that's a less magical description of, of, of matter. I like it. I like it a lot more. <laughs> well, but I think, Lee, your question also gets to a slightly more trenchant problem. You referred to this early on when you were wondering about the relationship between matter and information. And I would wonder about the relationship between matter and energy. Mm -hmm. I'm, not a f I'm not a physicist by any stretch of the imagination. And the last time I did a science was in high school. But um, The last time I did a science. <laughs> you haven't licked any wax? I was just doing a science earlier. That's so weird. You did a science today? <laughs> First thing in the morning, calisthenics and I do a science. Oh, yeah, so I haven't done a science since high school, but from what I understand, like E equals MC squared, the E stands for energy and M is this kind of thereness of a thing that has mass and so on. But the equals there means they can go back and forth. They are convertible in, in some way. And so once we start talking about energy as material, then I think we have an incredibly interesting but also complicated notion of stuff that slips more into a category that we used to call something like soul or essence or something like that. Yeah, and I also think that once we start talking about energy, we open up the possibility of bringing in a kind of third category that we've not yet really talked about. We've been talking about the ideal and the material, but then there's also the virtual, increasingly mm. important category in our lives today that really does kind of get at this relationship between materiality and ideality without really being reducible to either. Yeah. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. That last point that Lee just made, for me, presses then again the question, why should I choose materialism? And here I wonder if there's a certain amount of a political commitment, right? I choose materialism because a certain politics follows from that rather than a kind of politics that might follow from idealism or some other philosophical position. Yeah, here's where I want to recover the magical nature of material that I was talking about <laughs> earlier, because I do think that one thing that is very useful about materialist accounts and 
the reason that I more frequently than not will choose them is because there's so much that can be told in attention to the material things, processes, assemblages, etc., that is left out of larger idealistic accounts because those larger idealistic accounts quite simply can't or doesn't want to give an account of Mm. the material. So this is why we see materialism embraced by feminists, by queer theorists, by people of color, by increasingly people who work on philosophy of technology, et cetera, is because it's a way of getting at all of these things material things, parts of our material conditions that get written out of the larger ideologies and unfortunately end up being written out of the power structures that those ideologies undergird. This language of written is one helpful way of understanding why a lot of philosophers and other theoreticians are very enamored of the word inscribed these days, Mm -hmm. because not only are they written out of those ideologies and often written out of history, but those ideologies are written on in a very material way the bodies and practices of women, of people of color, of queer folk, and so on. That inscription is an incredibly material practice. It's a practice and an experience that is not of thinking, but it's of my embodiment and the way my body is in the world. I mean, I'm always cautious of any attempt to draw a direct relation between like a metaphysical position and a political position, because I do think that metaphysics often authorizes multiple readings and multiple interpretations that can't be tied one-to-one for specific politics. Although I do think there's a tendency within that. I mean, I think it's hard to be, say, a materialist and sort of a moralist. It's hard to be a materialist and someone who claims some kind of politics based on individual responsibility, because to be material is to think about, as I said, relations. But I also think that part of the appeal of being materialist is that it is in some sense about, you know, as Spinoza says, there's a limited efficacy of the true insofar as it is true, right? Ideas, true ideas by themselves don't really have effects. Um, you can't really expect the truth to sort of dispel all illusions because the reason why people are attached to specific illusions, specific ideas has to do with their affects, their histories, you know, and so on. And so to some extent for me, materialism is always about a certain humility with respect to philosophy, that philosophy is a way of thinking about the world. It is a way of changing the world, but is a way of changing the world. They cannot expect that change to simply come from a new philosophical pronunciation, a new articulation of a philosophy. It has to recognize that change happens through practices and practices involve other people and other things happening that just discovering a new idea or a new way of thinking about things is only a new interpretation of the world it's not changing the world in and of itself. Are you saying just by doing philosophy, we're not bringing about the revolution? (laughs) Sadly, no. I I feel like I'm a revolutionary, Jason. (laughs) But this is what I find so interesting about thinking both about matter and materialism. On the one hand, I think both of you were earlier on pointing out serious dangers and the anti-philosophical gesture that is the position that the world is just stuff. Mm-hmm. And that the world is just stuff doesn't really require our thinking about what stuff is, what's the definition of stuff, how does causality work in relation to stuff. 
it's an anti-philosophical gesture because what philosophers do often is ask why and how, even when that comes to, you know, a notion that, well, matter is just the stuff I see and touch and it's the stuff I measure in the lab. The philosophical question is, well, how do I have access to that? And is my access not determining what I'm saying about matter? So it seems as if philosophy in and of itself is always moving in an anti-materialist direction. Hmm. While on the other hand, without philosophy or at least some kind of theory, and I don't want to police the borders of philosophy, but without some kind of theory, just the blind appeal to matter or material practices or material relations is also, I think, itself insufficient for changing things. There has to be this relationship between the business that goes on in thinking and the insistence that something is going on that's other than thinking. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I think that's why we see in a lot of materialist accounts, and in particular, what's now called the new materialisms, is not only a decentering or a deprioritization of ideas, but of the thinker and what comes along with that is mm. the human. And there mm. I think that we can clearly see that I can be doing philosophy. I can be doing a materialist right. or an object-oriented philosophy, but in deprioritizing the centeredness of myself as thinker. You know, I am making some changes, right? I mean, I'm affecting some changes. I'm at least reorganizing the way that we look at the problems and the changes that might emerge. Yeah. And let me put my cards on the table. I think that object-oriented ontology, and I think its progenitor, speculative realism, is one of the most nonsensical philosophical positions I have ever come across. Because as far as I can tell, maybe I'm wrong, it's not the decentering of the thinker, but the insistence that there is stuff other than the thinker, and that whatever the thinker does depends on that stuff, and philosophy has to go back to beginning with well, what's the ontology of rocks? Like, what if a rock did ontology, what would that look like? And I find this to be an incredibly naive empirical materialism. That is, what you see is what is real, and what is real is stuff. And philosophy needs to just insist on that over and over again. Hmm. I find that the complete absence of philosophy – and frankly, I failed to see why this excites so many people. And it's strange that the new materialisms never really quite articulated what the old materialism they were against, but it often seemed like the old materialism they were against was Marx. Mm. I mean, because Marx would say, I mean, he says this in German ideology, you know, when he talks about Feuerbach and the cherry trees, like a cherry tree itself only existed in Germany after this and that date, right? Pointing out that everything we take as some sort of raw thing is itself situated there because of different practices, different relations, that the object that we contemplate, the rock that we want to do our ontology of, is itself a product of historical, geological, and other types of relations. And if we try and just sort of grasp the immediacy of the rock, we sometimes forget those relations which have brought the rock before us. And it seemed like the phrase associated with Marxist materialism is often 
historical materialism, right? That right. matters also has a history. And it seemed like a lot of the new materialism wanted to get rid of the history for the immediate access of the materiality of the thing or the thing thought in its thingliness. And that was an attempt to sort of escape the fact that in a Marxist version of materialism, there are no simple material objects. Everything that comes to us as an object is an effect of a kind of process. You end up making matter itself a fetish, which is a strange way to go about things. Yeah, and now I see more than even originally Lee's point about the importance of materialism being its philosophy of history, because what I think you're getting at, Jason, is that when I'm confronted with the rock, its rockness is not independent of an entire history, a history including a lot of social relations and so on, that make the rock in its not being human and other than human and decentering the human, it is not a rock without that history. And that history would include a history of social relations and so on. And that history would include the fetishization of the rock as a material object. Oh, nice. Yeah. So this kind of gets us back to the question that Rick was asking at the top of this segment, why materialism? So if we were going to be generous and try to give an account, why would people choose what are called new materialisms? Why do you think that is? I think, as was mentioned earlier, there are thinkers who come from all different kinds of positions that have been excluded from the history of philosophy, the history of metaphysics, the history of thinking about politics, for whom that history has, as I put it earlier, been written onto their very bodies in the form of practices. And I think there is an experience of being exasperated by theory constantly producing these structures of domination and the attempt to then produce a theory that is not legitimating or even producing a structure of domination requires this decentering. I think it requires a certain kind of posthumanism. And it requires a decentering of the thinker from this of that we talked about earlier, what thinking is of. So I think that's one appeal of materialism. As you put it before, Lee, the decentering, I think, is a really crucial move. Yeah. If I want to be generous, I mean, I do think that part of what drives some of the new materialisms is it is an attempt to do a sort of philosophical thinking that's adequate to the Anthropocene. Right. Like we're mm. becoming increasingly aware that to make sense of our place in the world, we can't just think about humans and interhuman relations. We need to think about things that exceed human relations like natural processes. And I think that part of some of, I mean, there's a whole complicated history to be written about you know, object ontology and actor network theory and the way all these different positions kind of articulated themselves together. In there, there was an attempt to think about the, I don't want to say agency, but the way in which the natural world is more than just an object for reflection and is actually something that is active and has effects that go beyond simply being something we can ponder out the window. Right. I mean, and that part, I think, needs to be taken seriously, even though some of the positions it ended up with didn't make a lot of sense. The attempt to think beyond the human is, I think, part of materialism as well. I mean, one of the things that happens when you're a materialist is that a lot of things like the rigid division between humanity and animals starts to break down 
because mm. if you start thinking of things more in terms of their needs, their bodily existence, and so on, there's not much that separates us from them. And then even beyond that, if you start thinking about activity processes, then it's also possible to think about the way in which even non-living things have a certain once again, I don't want to say agency, but a certain kind of activity to them mm -hmm. that they're not just inert. The matter is not just inert. Yeah. And for listeners who may think that we're getting a little bit in the weeds here with the object-oriented <laughs> ontologies and speculative <laughs> realisms, our old co-host, Charles Peterson, would say we're slipping off our bar stools here. But just to <laughs> kind of make it abundantly clear, like I agree with both Jason and Rick in their accounts of why one would choose this kind of a materialism. And I think it really does have to do with the fact that until we decenter the human thinker and center the world of stuff, the material world of stuff, then we're going to just keep getting lost in these questions about like, who's going to pay for the infrastructure or like what mm. is hidden in whose emails. And we're going to miss that the world itself is crumbling around us. And all of these questions that we're trying to answer are only going to lead to dead ends until we start reckoning with the global ecology that we're living in. And, you know, not just our relations to non-human animals in the natural world, but the system that all other things exist in and operate in and are active in and are dying in right now, independent of us. In a way, then, the Anthropocene forces materialism on us. If only it did. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it, the Anthropocene should force materialism on us if only we had the luxury anymore of idealism. But I think, Lee, I don't know if this is a little bit of optimism or a more extreme pessimism. But I do think that as the planet dies more and more, materialism is going to be thrust upon us. Mm -hmm. And so my position is let's take it up now when we might be able to still do a little something rather than turn to it when it's finally thrust upon us because we're choking because there's no air left on the mm -hmm. planet. Yeah, and I think it's really important to keep open the option that to embrace this new, maybe we could say kind of more ecologically minded materialism does not necessitate rejecting the old Marxist historical materialism. Right. These two things can be cooperative. And maybe that's one of the things that I find a little bit frustrating about what gets called the new materialisms is the hostility to the older material, or not that old, right? Like 19th century materialism, the overtly political materialism that we inherit from Marx and that tradition. These are not mutually exclusive pathways forward. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Speaking of matter, the bar's closing. 
That's a material <laughs> fact. It's um, a material relation as well. So we got to settle our tabs and uh, make way for the clearing of our glasses. So any I guess final thoughts, but I guess I'm curious as we go around, I'd like to know if everyone here considers themselves to be a materialist and if so, why or why not? And then what that really means for them in terms of philosophy. And so I'll start. I'll say, yes, I am a materialist. <laughs> Hi, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> materialist Anonymous. <laughs> First, you have to admit there is a higher power. It works if you work it. And I do think that part of being a materialist is to some extent Occupying this paradoxical position of trying to think, recognizing the non-priority of thought, that thought is itself situated by material practices and it often comes after the fact in its attempt to reflect on its position and that part of being materialist is challenging the priority that thought claims for itself and recognizing that we don't start as thinking things, we start as living, existing, breathing things in relation to other things. And that often a face part of our existence is an important thing to recognize to understand both our place in the world and how we can make the world a better place. So Rick, Welcome to Materials Anonymous. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself to the group? I'm Rick and I'm a materialist. Hi, Rick. <laughs> so for those who have been listening to the podcast for some seasons, this will be no surprise at all, but I'm influenced quite heavily by the philosopher Theodore Adorno. I'm a materialist in a sense that I take from him, namely there is this decentering away from thought to something that is other than thought, but that decentering also requires thought. It can't be a thoughtless decentering. And he is aware of all sorts of political movements that have been a thoughtless decentering, fascism, for example, or in particular, national socialism. And so I'm convinced with him that this decentering of the thinker to that of which it is thinking does not thereby eliminate thinking. But there is, as he puts it, a precedence. The German word there is vorrang, a ranking ahead of the material thing over thought, but that doesn't eliminate thought. The reason why I want to stick with thought is because I think we have a lot of problems to analyze socially, politically, and ethically that while themselves are not material, work out as practices of domination on real people's bodies. I think of things like race, gender, class, ability, disability. While race is not a material thing, it does inscribe itself, to use that metaphor of writing again, on actual material bodies, and it requires a whole lot of thinking to untangle that. Lee, what about you? Well, I mean, I think I'm materialist curious. I don't think that I would call myself a materialist, although I do think strategically I would at times call myself a materialist, mostly in the service of making an argument that is fundamentally a political argument. And I think it has many uses. Philosophically, it has many good political uses. Materialism does. But I suppose, you know, maybe I'm in the wrong room or the wrong group therapy here, but I do think that my tendency is really increasingly to look at systems. And I'm not sure that 
prioritizing either ideas or material is effective in really understanding systems. Yeah, so I guess, you know, I can't totally uh, sign on to the materialist group yet, but I definitely am strategically sympathetic to its use. And weren't you a materialist for a little while in college? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was experimenting. So uh, speaking of material, uh, we actually have real costs that help us get this actual material podcast produced and into your earbuds every week. So if you want to help us out, and we would really appreciate it, you can visit our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and sign up for one of our support levels there. Them bits is stuff and that stuff needs to be held by someone and we have to pay them. So help us pay for them bits. That's right, you guys. There is no cloud. It's just my computer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to call a cab. And speaking of materialism, I'm going to pay for it because I have the ability. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Rick. (laughs) All right. Bye, guys. Catch y'all next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.